Well, this morning I'm going to begin a new series of messages that take us into the new year. Now, normally when I start a new year, uh, it's rather typical that what I try to do is focus on something of mission. Mission of God's people, mission of the church, and, and typically I try to do that because, you know, New Year's is that time when people make resolutions, they want to do something new, they want to maybe kick out some old bad habits, so it seems like a good time to do that. This year I'm, I'm doing something a little bit different. I would like us to focus this year on, on what it is God is doing. I know we could take that in so many different directions, particularly if you look at the Psalms. In the Psalms, you read so many places in the Psalms where it talks about all the things that God has done, right? It it names all of the acts of God and the things that he has done. Other places in the Psalms, we read about where God will do something. He will save his people. He will bring salvation. But I'm going to be focusing on Psalm 23, a psalm that does not name what God has done, a psalm that does not look to what God will do, but Psalm 23 is very much present tense. It is all about naming what God does right now. In fact, there are seven what I'm going to call scenes Seven scenes or actions in Psalm 23 that name this. You find the number seven often in the Bible. And, and not that it's written anywhere what seven exactly means, but so often in the Bible, when you see things that happen in sevens, seven is that indicator of God working something divine in his creation. God's divine activity upon the earth or within his creation. So you see it right away in Genesis 1. Seven days of creation, God's divine activity within the creation. You see it all the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation. All the groups of sevens there, the seven churches, the seven lampstands, the seven bowls, the seven scrolls that go out, all of those things that are the seven seals that are broken All of those things indicating then God's divine activity in his creation. So in Psalm 23, there are seven different scenes or seven indicators of God doing something in his creation with his people. I'm going to start with reading that one, Psalm 23, and see if you can find what these seven scenes or actions are, I'll give you a hint. The first one is the title of today's message, okay? Psalm 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 is one of those familiar psalms that so many people know and recognize and brings comfort to so many. 
I want to take then the next seven weeks and go one by one through these seven scenes of this psalm as a way of reminding ourselves of what it is God does for us now, here, in this place, and how he is present with us. So it's not that I'm going to preach Psalm 23 seven weeks in a row, but we're going to use those phrases as a uh, launching pad towards something else in another part of Scripture. So today, taking that first scene, that first activity of God that we see there, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And I'm going to bring that then forward to Ezekiel 34, and that's where we're looking at today. Ezekiel 34, with that thought in mind, of God making us lie down in green pastures. Ezekiel 34, I'm going to begin at verse 11. It says this. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, shepherds, flocks of sheep, pastures, uh, these are not new images in the Bible. In fact, these are images that are repeated over and over again in the Bible in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You see references to shepherds and flocks of sheep and pastures because it was a common, ordinary thing for them. It, it was an image that would have made sense because it was something they would have seen every day. In all of the towns and the villages, the, the hills and the valleys outside of them would have had these flocks of sheep where they go. Here's a few pictures that illustrate something of that, of what it looks like for those flocks of sheep to be in those areas around in Israel. That it's sort of this scattered land, it's rather dry and desolate, and in these places where they go, the shepherds would have to bring the sheep to find the pastures. It's not like West Michigan, where the, where the soil can be so fertile that things just grow everywhere. And the challenge that you have here in Michigan is that farmers who want to grow crops have to clear the land of all of the trees and everything else that grows there, because so much grows. But in the land of Israel, these, these patches of grass, these pastures, were scattered apart because there was so much land there that was rocky and desolate and nothing grew. So what the shepherds would have to do, and here's where you see this image 
of shepherds and sheep in the Bible come through. Shepherds would have to take their flock of sheep and they would have to go from one pasture to the next and find these little patches where the grass would grow. Take the sheep there and they would graze there and then take the sheep to find a new pasture and the grass that was at the one before would eventually grow back. And so they were constantly moving around to find these pastures where the sheep could graze. That's the image that's called to mind here when they think of shepherds and what that looks like for them in their time. But this is an image that goes back to the Old Testament. So there is something of the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament promise of God that is all wrapped up and captured in this image of shepherds and sheep and pastures and how those things all come together. Let's make a little bit of sense out of that, of what it would have been like for the people of Israel in the time of Psalm 23, but also in the time of Ezekiel, to hear these words and what it meant to them, how they heard this prophecy coming to them about God being their shepherd and what that looked like. Let's remember, first of all, that the Old Testament covenant that came to Abraham was a covenant that was about two things, descendants and land. So when you thought about what the promise of God meant in the Old Testament, the people who received that promise, the people of Israel, thought about those two things. They thought about the people of Israel, the descendants, and they thought about the land the place, the very specific geographic location of Canaan. So as time went on then, and you know the Old Testament story, the people of Israel go into slavery in Egypt, and then God calls Moses to come and bring the people out, and they then go back and take that land As you read ahead through Exodus, you find about that journey. And then into the book of Joshua, you read the story of how the nation of Israel comes back into the land of Canaan. And that covenant is then restored and fulfilled within that. But it's a conditional covenant, the covenant with Moses was. The Old Testament covenant. A conditional covenant, the people had their end that they had to do. And then God had his promise on his end to do. Now then... What we remember about the Old Testament covenant, particularly with the land, is that it measured the covenant. It measured the people's compliance with the covenant. We, we often look right past that because we have no thought of that. But for the people of the Old Testament, when the land was bountiful, when the land of, of Israel, the land of Canaan, flourished, when the crops were plentiful and the harvest came in, not only did they say, wow, God has blessed us, but that was also their measurement to say, we must be doing a pretty good job at keeping our end of the covenant. The, the condition of the covenant where God would bless the land and the people if we followed his rules and his decrees, his laws, his commandments. So the land itself measured how well the people would keep this covenant. They would do that in ways then that would go the other way too. If there was a season of drought, a a season where the crops failed, a season where there were natural disasters, 
that to the Old Testament people of Israel would then be a measure, an indicator of maybe we need to pay attention to how well we're living up to the covenant. Because if the land isn't producing a bountiful harvest, then we must not be keeping our end, our condition of this covenant. You see how that worked for them, back and forth. The ultimate failure of covenant then for the people of Israel would have been and was exile. Not just that the land fails to produce crops or or was not bountiful, but if they would be completely taken away from the land altogether in exile, that would then to them be the indicator of we have failed our end of the covenant. And as you read through the Old Testament stories, you know that's how it worked, that when they failed their end of the covenant, that God would send in the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the people would go into exile. They would be taken away from the land as that measurement of their covenant. So, against that, Ezekiel writes these words about a rescue that God himself will come and rescue from captivity and return to the land all that that covenant symbolized for them. He would restore that covenant, and he uses the language there of a shepherd, as a shepherd brings sheep into the good pasture from all those places out in the countryside to bring them back to the good pasture of the land. God, the shepherd, will do that. That's what the prophecy is looking for there. That's what Ezekiel's talking about. That God himself is going to restore this this covenant. And that's the emphasis here. The emphasis is that God is going to be the one to do this. God will be the shepherd. I just read a few verses out of Ezekiel 34. If you were to back up and read that entire chapter, all of Ezekiel 34, you would find that it's not only a promise about God being a shepherd, but you would also read in that chapter a warning. Warning about all of the people who have failed that in the past. Warnings and judgments about those who came and pretended or claimed to be the shepherd of God's people, but looked nothing towards the righteous decrees of God to do that. All the ways that they've gone astray, all the ways that they've led the people astray in that, it's through all of those failures that Ezekiel makes that promise that the Lord himself will be their shepherd and will come to them. Maybe that gives a little bit of explanation of why uh, the passage that I read ended with that twist at the end about the sleek and the strong will be destroyed. What's that about? It's a decree there that God is, again, declaring that with him as the shepherd, that those who are weak and those who are oppressed, those who often are pushed away or trampled upon, God will restore justice to them. God will shepherd his people, not just by letting the strongest get ahead of everyone else and take for themselves, but God will shepherd his people with justice, with love, in his covenant. 
Those are the images that come to mind when the Old Testament people of Israel would have read a prophecy like we see in Ezekiel 34. A prophecy that pulls from some of those words of the psalm. You see that in there. That you, you think that Ezekiel has in mind some of these phrases of Psalm 23, looking back at King David and bringing this prophecy of the Lord, becoming their shepherd. But let's bring this into the New Testament. Let's bring this to a place where we see it taking shape for us today because we don't live in that Old Testament covenant anymore. However, the the language and the symbols and the imagery of a shepherd and sheep and pastures, that does carry forward. In fact, Jesus talks about that. So I'm going to read just a few verses that come from the New Testament then. In John chapter 10, where Jesus says this about being a shepherd and sheep. John chapter 10, he says this. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. So Jesus himself carries this image forward. I, I tend to think that Jesus has in mind perhaps Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34 when he gives that story about being the gate and being the good shepherd and calling the sheep and leading them out. He keeps that image alive. But the covenant is different, isn't it? We don't live in the same covenant arrangement that the Old Testament people of Israel did. We don't live in that covenant arrangement that's, that's conditional upon having to make sacrifices over and over and over again, having to atone for our sin over and over and over again. We live in a time now where because of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, that atonement has been given once and for all. The covenant looks different now. And it's a covenant then that's no longer tied the same way. It's not tied to the land. We don't live as people of God anymore who think that land is a part of God's promise and covenant with us. Well, I mean, I suppose in one way that's obvious because we don't live in Canaan, right? We, we don't live in that physical part of the world where Canaan exists. And I would bet to say that any one of us does not measure our standing with God by how the agricultural harvest over in Israel is happening, the way that they would have in the Old Testament. We don't measure the covenant that way anymore because we don't tie the covenant to land the way that they did in the Old Testament. So that specific geographic location is not part of the covenant that we carry anymore, the covenant that we have in Christ. But we also notice then that because of that, that the covenant is also no longer a conditional arrangement, right? I've I've mentioned that. We don't have priests who give sacrifices over and over and over again. 
There's not that condition that has to be met over and over again of trying to attain that righteous standard of God. But it has been done once and for all. And so we live in an unconditional covenant where God has said, I am your shepherd and I have done everything that you need to be my sheep, to be my flock, to be in my pasture. Which raises a question, a question about that pasture. So if the Old Testament people of Israel would have read those words, the words of Psalm 23, the words of Ezekiel 34, and if they would have understood that very literally to be talking about a pasture, a land in Israel, in Canaan, what is that for us now? Right? Since we no longer live under this covenant with God that is tied together with land, then what are the pastures of God's covenant promise for us in the church now today? When we read these words of Ezekiel 34 and this promise of good, rich pasture, what is that? What is Ezekiel talking about in ways that speak to us in the New Testament church. The pasture that Jesus is calling us to in John 10 is a pasture of grace. Right? The, the grace of God has now become this good, rich pasture in which the sheep of God's flock lie down. So we read Ezekiel 34, and we don't take that as a call for a pilgrimage over to Canaan, that we need to go lie down in fields in Canaan. We read Ezekiel 34 in light of the New Testament, in light of John chapter 10, and we say, you know what? There is now a pasture of grace. Our Lord, our shepherd, calls us to lie down and rest in his grace the pasture that he has put before us. The grace of God has now become this pasture. So when we live as people who respond to that invitation, when we respond to that invitation and live in the pasture of God's grace, when we become people then who who echo that grace for others to see, then, catch this then, grace becomes the pasture of our lives doesn't it? Grace is the thing that becomes our landscape. Grace becomes the place where we live, where we dwell, where God himself has brought us. He has shepherded us to be there, to abide in the pastures of his grace. And when we live and feed and nourish upon that grace of God in the pasture of his grace, then we become people fed by that grace who echo that grace for others. When we find ourselves maybe living in the places where we become judgmental, condescending, condemning, where we become as... Well, as Ezekiel noted, the sleek and the strong. When we find ourselves on the edges of that pasture wandering out, 
we hear again the voice of the shepherd calling his sheep, come back. Come to the pasture of God's grace. Feed there, abide there, lie down there, that you may live within his grace. May we be people then who always declare through all that we do and say that the Lord is our shepherd and he brings us to the green pasture of his grace. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you have declared yourself to be our shepherd. So Lord, we, we ask you to forgive us for all the times when maybe we have tried to make our own way instead of following your leading. Forgive us for the times when we have not heeded your call to come to the pasture of your grace. And Lord, may we then be people fed and nourished by your grace who then echo that grace for others to see and know and hear and come to your pasture of grace as well. We thank you for that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.